0: I'm Cinder Niemela, and along with Charlotte Gilmano, welcome to the Inspired Wisdom Podcast. I believe the most powerful gifts you can give yourself is time to reflect on your talents and experience, and then have the wisdom to act with confidence and grace. This podcast is for entrepreneurs, leaders, and individuals who want to thrive in work and life. Your journey to being connected and inspired by the world around you starts right now. Welcome back to part two of my interview with Beverly Wright. In part one, Beverly shared her reflections on having a job and driving a career that led to a fulfilling and prosperous life. If you haven't listened to part one, you may want to do that before listening to this second part. In this episode, Beverly will pick up with her role coaching sales leaders and teams to high impact results while she was with IBM. She will also share with us how she partnered with 29 other IBMers to transform the sales organization into a coaching culture. She'll also share with us how she earned four division leadership awards and the Golden Circle Award. Her community involvement with the Dallas dinner tables balancing her career and family life, and advice for advancing your career. So let's continue with part two of my interview with Beverly Wright. What inspired you to go into coaching?
1: My organization was a little different in that my budget didn't come from HR. It came from the sales executives. And I went to a luncheon one day, and as we introduced ourselves, this lady said that she was a coach. Well, it was back before coaching was so well-known, business coaching. And so I assumed, like many people, that she was a sports coach. So I said, you know, what sport do you coach? And she said, oh, no, I work with ministers. And I was like, what do you mean you work with ministers? So she went on to explain to us. She said, your ministers are always supporting their members. And who do they talk to? And so I just filed that away. I thought, that is really interesting. So I found our local coach chapter, ICF chapter, and started going to those meetings. And I talked to my manager at the time and asked her if in our development process, they would pay for me to be trained as a coach. And it was a five minute conversation. She said, I said, you know, I think it may be something that could help us develop our salespeople. And so that was why I got into coaching, but found out I had a passion for it. I loved it. I loved seeing what we were able to do with it in our organization very quickly we saw the difference and we developed a coaching culture uh, that actually spread beyond our part of the sales division in partnering with 29 other IBMers in different parts of the company and working together as a cohort. So when you say you helped to transform the sales
0: organization into a coaching culture, say a little bit more about that.
1: Well, I, as I was going through training, the first course that I took, that I enrolled in, the training that they initially paid for, was Corporate Coach University, which mm-hmm. is now, I think, the coaches. It's Corporate Coach and Coach U are combined, but they were separate at the time. And so I went through Corporate Coach U because I knew that that was where my focus would be, is on you know, working with our company and the people in our company. I seem to learn better when I can practice it as it goes along. So when I started taking the coaching courses, I talked to some of my peers and said, "Here's I'm learning about this new thing called coaching and I'd like to practice on some people. Would you be willing to be a volunteer client and let me work with you as I'm learning this and try some of the things that they're suggesting and you give me feedback about whether it's helpful or not. So I started with some of the sales managers who knew me in other roles because we had worked together off and on and, you know, over the years in different ways. And so I probably had about three that I started with, working with them one-on-one. And then I started taking this course called Coaching Sales Teams. So I went to our executive at the time and said, okay, Bob, now I am taking this course called Coaching Sales Teams, so I need a team to practice on. And so he gave me... The, he, he said i have two teams that might be a good fit for what you're doing one has 25 people on it the other has 12. and i said well you know since i'm really new at this and not sure what i'm doing i probably need to take the 12 so that i can injure fewer people <laughs> while yeah. i'm learning right? <laughs> and uh and so after that he said well that's a good choice the sales manager that is working with that team has just taken them over as one of his new teams And I think he'd be open to trying something different. Well, it turned out that that sales manager was someone I already had mentored in the past and was working with him as one of my volunteer clients. And so that's how we started. I didn't know at the time that the team that I chose was at the bottom of all of their metrics, every single one, customer set, revenue generation, lead, you know, whatever metric we had, they were at the bottom against their peer teams. Mm -hmm. You know, I talked to the leader first and said, tell me your vision for the team. Then he and I met in person with the team and explained what we were hoping to do and, you know, gave them the highlights of it. And then I met with every team member of those 12 people, every person on the team, one-on-one, so that they could ask me any questions that maybe they were hesitant to ask in person, you know, in a group. Mm -hmm. And uh, then we started coaching, they were meeting weekly as a sales team. So we agreed to not add additional meetings, but the manager and the team agreed that every other meeting would be a coaching meeting. And that's what, and that's how we worked it out. And when they first started, the team was very much manager centric is what I call it. They waited for the manager to say, we're going to do X and then they'd execute. And what we saw over time, not a lot of time, was that we moved them to where they were responsible, whether the manager was there or not. As an example, we took all of the sales metrics and each team member had to sign up to to own, quote unquote, a metric. And owning it meant you you had to understand the impact of that metric and how your individual and collective behavior as a sales team either helped that metric or hurt it. Hmm. and be able to train your teammates on that metric that you own. They really took to that. And so that's when you saw them shift from waiting for the manager to go through the metrics to say, here's how we did. They owned it. We even came up with a way for, because one of the things I asked them is, okay, great. We've got this team today, but you know, teams ebb and flow. People come on, they move to other teams, you know, all of those kind of things. How will you maintain what you've built here with the way you're managing your team If you have new members join, because then you kind of start from zero. So they came up with this concept of kind of a welcome wagon where somebody new would come to the team and they had someone that would explain who owned each metric. And then that person would sit down with the new person and take them through. Here's how we run our team. Here are the metrics. Here's how our behavior individually and collectively affects this metric. And so about six months in, I get a, a, a call, a phone call from the second line manager that said, hey, I just want to thank you for what you're doing with our team. And I said, what do you mean? Because I was so heads down just trying to figure out, you know, what I was learning and then applying it that I really had not even benchmarked initially where we started from a metrics perspective. But the second line manager had done that because he was looking across his teams and saw that this team that had been at the very bottom for a, a long time, all of a sudden, was at the very top. And so he had gone to the team leader and said, what changed for this team? And she said, oh, it's the coaching we're doing with Bev. She said, now everybody on the team sees excellence as the only way that, the only thing that they are interested in is being excellent." Isn't that interesting? It was fabulous. I mean, honest to goodness, I can see clearly I'm still in touch with some members of the team. And this was probably in like 2001, maybe. But they, they started being invited to other team meetings to talk about their transformation and how they got there. So did you work then with other teams as well? Then I, the second team I worked with was in our Atlanta office because the first team was co-located with me in Dallas. And so we met in person, but then I was interested in seeing if we could do that with a team that was remote to me. So I coached a team by teleconference and we did the same. By then I took what I learned from the first team and transferred that process. It was more, you know, defining the process and making it repeatable. Did the same thing, met with the manager, coached the manager separately, and then met with the team, you know. So we started kind of making it a process and virtually the same thing happened. And after, um, after that, what really made it grow is that the first manager that noticed the difference it made for his team, when he called me that night, he said, well, I just wanted you to know that I'm going to send a note to the executive team to let them know that we've been talking forever about high performance teams and maybe we've come across something that can help us get there. So he sent a note where he had all the metrics there, metrics when they started, and their metrics about six months in, and he talked about, you know, coaching and how that seemed to be the thing that made the difference. So our executive that was over, he was actually based in Canada at the time, when he came to visit Dallas, he scheduled a meeting with me and said, Bev, why aren't we doing this everywhere? And I said, because it's just me, right?
0: <laughs> and I'm yeah. doing-
1: and I'm doing it in addition to the job I was actually hired to do, right? It was something I'm trying. And so that's how um, they decided to invest in training more coaches. And, uh, and so the ones they trained were the people that reported to me. So the, the staffing managers um, were then trained as coaches so that we could rep. And virtually the same thing happened with the teams and individuals that they coached is that we saw marked improvement.
0: Mm-hmm. While you were at IBM, you've won some awards, the Four um, Division Leadership Awards and the Golden Circle Award. Can you tell us a little bit about those awards and, and your accomplishments that led to those?
1: At that time, those were two major awards that IBM offered where they came, both came with trips for you and a spouse or significant other, and, and they were rare. Uh, some people go their whole career and never get one leadership award or one golden circle. Golden circle was supposed to be the cream of the cream. And and I say that very humbly because when you talk about awards, that's never something I'm really thinking about. And in the case of the four leadership awards, every single one came from four different managers at different times in my career. Mm -hmm. And they were all total surprises. So the first one was because we had established, it was when I was an administration manager, and we had created a brand new branch office that had not existed before. And they took the, the leadership team from existing branches and we didn't have a choice. They said, you know, you have skills we need to start this new branch office. And so you were moved if they thought you had the skills to make this office success. So the write-up write that my manager submitted uh, when he was suggesting me for the award, I did get to see after the fact. And he just talked about, you know, being able to bring people from all these disparate branch offices and create a culture for the new small business branch office, which was what our new mission was. And to do it in a way where we became a cohesive team because we came from different branch office cultures and had to then carve out our own culture and learn to work with sales and marketing and administration because at that time we were all under the same management structure. And so he gave me credit for being one of the managers that actually led that and made sure we, we were first runner up for branch of the year, our very first year of operation.
0: Mm. That's wonderful. And,
1: so, and it was a lot of moving parts and there were a lot of people that didn't want to be in the small business <laughs> branch that were mandated to come. But what happened is our leadership team came from all these different places. And we did a, a community service project that I think more than anything really made us start to understand teamwork better. Rehab hmm. the house of a, um, a, in a low income area of an elderly man that didn't have the resources. And so we took off a day and everybody from the branch went and we did amazing things to this man's house. And seemed like we had, we discovered there were skills that we didn't even know people had. They ended up building and not just redoing his house, but he got a new dog house. He got, you know, because somebody said, oh, his dog house doesn't look safe either. I think we can build a dog house in addition. And it was, it just really made a difference in the way we worked because the people that maybe you didn't interact with at work because your work didn't bring you together. In the community service day, we painted beside each other or scrape paint or whatever job you were assigned. So you got to know more people that were in your office and on your team that maybe you didn't get to know because your work drew you together. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I've shared that over time with people when they're looking to build teams is that sometimes that happens not in the formal work environment, but more in the social or community environment where you get to know each other's people better.
0: Yes. Well, and speaking of uh, your community involvement, I do you want you to tell us about the Dallas Dinner Tables and how that got started.
1: Well, that is a, a part, another part of community service. So I am still currently on the uh, Leadership Dallas Alumni Board. Leadership Dallas is like in most cities, in your through your Chamber of Commerce, there's a, a Leadership Stanford or a Leadership Los Angeles. And so I uh, was enrolled in a program when I was at IBM, and actually my IBM mentor is the person that recommended Leadership Dallas after hearing what I wanted to accomplish in our mentor-mentee uh, relationship. I told him that I wanted to represent boards and commissions to represent IBM on boards and commissions. And he asked me if I was aware of Leadership Dallas. And so long story short, I ended up applying and IBM supported me for that. And it was such a amazing education about our city and how things get done in the city. And there were like 50 of us in a class. And it was about a nine month program where one day a month, we focused on a particular area of the city. So it might be housing, or uh, the criminal justice system. I got to ride along with a police officer and really kind of see through their eyes what they go through. And we had an arts and culture day. We had, you know, all these different things. And most of those programs are similarly designed. As a result of being a grad of leadership, Dallas, a colleague of mine that was in my class suggested I go to this event called Dallas Dinner Table, which was around 2000, I think, is when I I first um, heard about it. And so I went to the event and it was life changing for me. So Dallas Dinner Table was created by the Leadership Dallas Alumni Board at the time that was in place at the time during the 1999-2000 area. In Texas, there had been a a tragedy where we had a black man that was dragged to death by two white men in a city called Jasper, Texas. Mm. And it was horrific, and it really got the board's attention, and they said, as a leadership group, we need to do something that helps people from different races get to know each other better so that no person could do this to another human. And so they hired a consultant, and the consultant came in and and created this process that has become known as the Dallas Dinner Table. And when I joined the board back in, I think, 2001, somewhere like that, they were discussing how could they keep it alive and grow it because that's not the primary mission of the alumni board was something of this community um, service project. People that know me were not surprised that I had a lot of strong suggestions on how that could be done. And so they asked me if I'd be willing to chair the Dallas Dinner Table through its transition from being under the uh, Dallas Chambers Leadership Dallas program to an independent nonprofit. And so since 2002, I have been the chair and we have an annual event on Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. We hope to expand it to other days, but right now it's on Martin Luther King Jr. holiday where we bring people of different races together across the city of Dallas and the surrounding suburbs uh, in a facilitated conversation about race. And so this year we had a little over 600 people. We've had as many as 1,200. We've controlled the growth uh, in the last few years because we're all volunteer led. We don't have any paid staff. We're hoping to change that too as we continue to, to fundraise. We've been quoted in the Wall Street Journal, in the Morning News and in other places where they're talking about having candid conversations that bring people together. And, and that's really what Dallas Dinner Table does. We have people come with whatever questions they have about people that are different from them. And we create a safe environment for those, them to ask those questions and get to know people that are different from themselves. And then also understand how similar we are in really important ways.
0: I don't know too many other cities that
1: have something like that. Is it nationwide? Well, we, we have certainly had other cities contact us about bringing our model to them. We are a IRS approved 501c3. Mm -hmm. And so we did get that designation a couple of years ago. We did a pilot in Little Rock, Arkansas in 2015. And that went well. And it was kind of our first test to get outside of our geography Mm -hmm. and see what resources it took to do it, you know, someplace that was remote from us. And so that's our, our goal. We would love to have one night across the U S where there were dinner tables happening in every state. And so that's kind of our, that's kind of our big hairy goal, right? And so, yeah. but we, we are doing it a lot, doing a lot more here. Like for instance, we now have companies and some other organizations that are, you know, licensing uh, one-time licensing to use our process in their company. So we've done that for, um, two organizations so far where they paid us to use that, which is part of our fundraising, and then we have another one scheduled for next month. So we're starting to do uh, more of those kinds of things. So just stay tuned. We hope to be coming to a community near you soon.
0: Well, I hope you come to Oakland and San Francisco. That would be <laughs> awesome. Uh, well, we'd lo-
1: we, we actually are trying to develop a list of, of places, uh, trying to keep track of the people that are contacting us because it just takes a few people that are willing to work to make it happen. And we learned that in our pilot with Little Rock.
0: One question that comes up for me is you've had this long career, this 38 years at IBM and done so many wonderful things, both with the company and in the community.
1: How did you balance that with raising, don't you have three children? I have two. Well, you know, it's, um, I I believe you can have everything you want. I just don't think you can have it all at the same time. And so one of the reasons when I said to you earlier that I didn't really drive my career for the first part of it, because I on purpose took jobs that were pretty nine to five when my children were young. Hmm. When I went into management, it was a family conversation. My son was too young to participate, but my daughter was old enough for us to kind of talk to her about what would change because I had always been, my husband's job had him traveling sometimes and being away from home. And so one of us needed to be more available. And so as a family, we sat down and talked about, is this something we can do? And is this the right time? And so I think my husband and I did some creative things to make it work. So as an example, the end of my work was not as predictable as it had been when I had a nine to five job. And so I actually hired a taxi service where it was one guy. It was the same taxi, every single day, the same guy. There was a password that only he had and the the Montessori school director had. The children didn't have it. So that if I was going to be late, I could call him and say, can you pick my kids up and take them to a prearranged person? In the summer, I would hire college students so that my kids didn't have to get up all summer long like little soldiers. That was important to me. I always had really, really responsible people.
0: That's awesome. What's the most important advice that you would give uh, a young person today in their thinking about their career and what they want to do with their lives? Well, I
1: think it's the to recognize that each generation in the workplace has something to contribute and something that can be learned from the other generation. So they both can contribute and they also can learn by uh, others, and so I've, I mentor a lot of, of millennials. And the thing I'm excited about with them is that they really bring a different level of enthusiasm and they bring really, really early commitment to community service, mm-hmm. it's very socially responsible. And I think companies that want to retain them will offer that to them in their career, you know, so that those things are, there's a word called intersectionality that you hear a lot of uh, millennials use. And what that means to them is that they like to have all different facets of their life come together in some place, and that place usually is work. So they want social, career, um, they want um, you know learning, they want all of those things to be a part of their life. And many times, because they spend so much time at work, they'd like for as many of those facets to come together or to intersect at work Mm -hmm. and so the more companies can offer that to them the happier they will be they also want people to take them seriously and not to overlook them or uh, dismiss them because they don't have years and years of experience what they do have is they grew up in the technology age and so they're really good at you know at the technology side of it what that means that they sometimes miss is the real connection piece of person to person because they're on all of these devices and all of these social media apps. And so sometimes, and they want that, they want feedback. So I would say to them to to really think about what they want and to be open to learning from other generations and contributing what they have to offer, which is a lot, to the people that are interested in learning from them. There's something called mentoring up. Mm-hmm. And so mentoring up is when they, they pair a baby boomer, like me as an example, with a millennial. And what can we learn from each other, right? They, they certainly helped me with, uh, there are a couple that, like one is on our um, leadership team for Dallas Dinner Table. She's been extremely useful in helping us understand how we can be more effective with what we're doing with our nonprofit from a um, social media perspective. I just saw her the other night at an event, and the first thing she says, oh, we have to get a picture, and I said, oh, I always forget that part, right? Yeah. <laughs> they, they take, so we took, we took, she took a selfie, and then one guy saw us uh, trying to take a picture, he said, oh, I'll take it for you, and, but I never remember that kind of stuff, but they think about everything has to be a photograph or it didn't happen. That's right, <laughs> that's funny. And so, I, and, and I say, to, and then to be patient, you know, to not think, they have to learn everything in one or two years. Because experience, what I always say, is that experience is something you can't buy. You can't sleep with a book under your pillow and get it through osmosis. It's a day-by-day, hour-by-hour thing. So slow down. I asked one one time, I said, how long do you plan to work? Because she was talking about being promoted and that she had gotten a promotion this year and next year she hoped she'd be a senior or whatever. And I was like, well, you're 22, right? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) And so how long are you going to work? And there's a reason that there is time spent between these different levels because they equate to experience. Mm. And if you rush through those, you might feel good initially, but at some point you're going to have to compete against someone that put in the time to gain that experience. And you're going to be at a disadvantage.
0: Very wise advice there. What's one thing that you know
1: now that you wish you knew earlier? You know, to be bold without apology. I, I think that you can get advice from lots of people, but at the end of the day, it is your life. And I think sometimes we are we dull our shine because we think, especially from a woman's perspective, I think men handle it in a different way, but they have their insecurities too. But we think, you know, confidence and power and those kind of things are impolite. Mm-hmm. And so for the women, I say, ask for what you want, understand what your relationship is with money and power because power for good is a wonderful thing. Get as much of it as you can. Mm-hmm. And, and so, I, I, think, and I think that's true for, for men as well Is be authentic and don't think you have to be a carbon copy of someone else just so you can fit in, figure out who you are and go be that person.
0: Yes, great advice.
1: What are you currently doing and then how can people get hold of you? Well, I'm currently doing a lot of different things. Mostly coaching is what I really am passionate about. I do training mostly for current clients that ask me to, uh, like I have one coming up starting Monday and I'm doing a series of three half-day trainings on uh, creating a more engaging culture in a company that feels like they don't have a, a positive culture today. I'm teaching a class at SMU on inclusive leadership. Um, I started it last year, presented it for the first, designed it and presented it last year and repeated it again uh, this past March. And um, and I'm coaching in different industries. So currently I have clients in healthcare, I have clients in financial services, a couple of entrepreneurs that are in, uh, one is in the construction consulting field, uh, the other is a, um, CEO of a large association. So lots of different, and I'm also mentoring. I have just met a new mentee for that's in the, the Dallas Chambers Young Professional Program that they have. I've been a mentor in that program for several years now. And uh, so doing a lot of different uh, things, and of course, still trying to expand the work we do with, uh, with the Dallas Dinner Table. The mm-hmm. best way to get a hold of me is they can go to my website, which is uh, www dot right my last name w-r-i-g-h-t right choice com and you'll find a way to to contact me directly through my through my website and I do offer a 30-minute complimentary session to find out if coaching if it's right for you and is it right for you right now um, and if I'm the right coach for you so um, if they're interested I love people I love what I do so it doesn't feel like work And I feel extremely blessed to have found the thing that I'm passionate about.
0: I absolutely love your energy. And I've enjoyed knowing you all of these years. And even after 38 years at IBM, (laughs) you still have as much energy and enthusiasm for the work that you do. Yeah, you know,
1: I'm blessed that I, I wake up every day like a jack in the box. I mean, I literally do my feet, I open my eyes and my feet hit the floor at the same time. So that that's, that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for that thing that makes me want to jump out of bed every day. And so fortunately, so far, I'm finding that.
0: Oh, that's great. Well, thank you so much, Beverly. I really appreciate this. And I've enjoyed having you on the call today. And I look forward to staying in touch.
1: Well, thank you so much for the invitation. It was great to catch up with you as well. And for us to stay in touch, that's one of the great things about, you know, meeting people from different places at the conferences and then staying connected and reconnecting. So thanks a bunch for the opportunity. I'm Cinder Niemela,
0: and you've been listening to the Inspired Wisdom Podcast. Thank you for joining us. We hope these conversations illuminate your path to your highest potential. For show notes and links to resources mentioned during today's episode, please go to inspiredwisdom.us. You can also follow Inspired Wisdom on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, design a fulfilling and prosperous life that engages your talents and passions.